News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Election night in Quebec was an interesting one after a campaign that covered divisive issues like immigration and Quebec identity, along with climate action and health care. Let's talk about the results and what people are saying about them. Joining us now is Dan Spector, Global News Montreal reporter. Hello, Dan. Good morning. Okay, so lots of interesting results. First off, what happened with the results last night? Well, the CAQ, as the polls had suggested, ended up with a dominant victory. They won 90 out of 125 seats at the National Assembly, 40% of the popular vote. Uh, The Liberal Party, the once mighty Liberal Party that formed government uh, before Legault, uh, a mere 21 seats with just 14% of the popular vote. Quebec Solidaire, which is a, a left-leaning sovereignist party, finished in third place with 11 seats. The much also mighty PQ, only three seats. And the upstart Conservative Party, which some people expected to uh, do some damage in this, uh, in this election uh, on their sort of platform of being against COVID restrictions, uh, ended up with zero seats. Uh, their leader not even getting elected in his own right. Wow. Okay. So what was, was there anything different about this election? There was a lot of talk about Quebec identity. Yes, and and Premier Legault, that was definitely one of the storylines that steered him to victory and that made him uh, very popular among voters, especially older voters and uh, francophone voters outside of Montreal. He really positioned himself as the guardian of what he's calling Quebec nationalism. The debate about sovereignty has really been replaced with talk of nationalism. He has positioned himself as the man who could be the protector of the French language, the protector of Quebec culture. Um, and he really uh, was able to convince people with that narrative. Also, the uh, management of the pandemic. It seems hey, the Quebecers really gave him an endorsement of the way he managed it, even though we had a lot of deaths here in Quebec. There was a curfew, the only province to implement a curfew where you couldn't even leave your house past 8 p.m. for months on end. Um, but people in general saw him as the person who navigated the province through that crisis. Um, so, yeah, that's okay. sort of other figure. Right. Okay, so that given that he talks so much, though, about like French language and Quebec identity, what does this mean for Anglophones? So Anglophones are honestly feeling probably a bit down this morning. They're feeling a bit excluded um, because, for one, if you think about where this government is so dominant... On the island of Montreal, they only won two seats out of 27, whereas outside the metropolis, they won 88 out of the remaining 98. So English speakers have never really seen themselves or identified with this leader because, for one, uh, he's presented some divisive bills. Uh, Bill 96 was a, a, a law to strengthen protection of the French language, which makes it harder to do business in English, uh, restricts English schools even more than before. And then Bill 21 was the bill that they presented early on, which um, banned public sector workers from wearing religious symbols at work. So you can't wear a hijab or any religious symbol if you're a teacher, a daycare worker, etc. All this stuff quite unpopular among Anglophones. The Premier did say last night um, that he's going to be the Premier for all Quebecers. He even spoke English in his victory speech, was, which was honestly a bit of a surprise to some. He's promising to reach out to Anglophones. And a lot of the MNAs, the elected MNAs we spoke to, promised also to reach out to Anglophones. But uh, Anglos are sort of uh, taking a, I'll believe it when I see it, 
attacked right now. Okay, and I'm also hearing that there's some discussion now about electoral reform as a result of what happened in the election. Why is that? So that is because a lot of the the, uh, smaller parties got a lot of votes, but it just didn't translate into seats. I'll give you like the example of the Conservative Party I was telling you about, the upstart Conservative Party under uh, leader Eric Zurem, which seemed to gain some traction during the campaign. People didn't expect them to have a massive performance, but they got 500,000 votes, 13% of the popular vote, and zero seats. Um, the PQ, the once powerful PQ, they got 15% of the popular vote and just three seats, whereas the Liberals got 14% of the popular vote and ended up with 21. So a lot of people are looking at these numbers and being like, how does it make sense that you can get this many, you know, actual votes and so little representation at the National Assembly? So uh, a few of the opposition parties in their speeches last night, they said, we want electoral reform. But of course, when you are the CAQ and you've had such a dominant performance in the current system, there's not going to be much willingness for a sweeping change in that. Right. That is so interesting. All right, Dan, also, I have to ask you, what about sovereignty issues, though? Did that come up at all, or is that kind of in the back of the mind now for Quebecers? Sovereignty is very far on the back burner now, and that is really part of the reason that Francois Legault has been able to perform so well. For decades and decades, we were always talking about the Liberal Party versus the Parti Québécois. And the main debate, every election, no matter what the different parties tried to bring up, was, are you a separatist or are you a federalist? But Sovereignty is now pretty unpopular among the Quebec electorate. And so Legault has instead been able to move forward with talking about nationalism. Nationalism is the new word. He, he wants to be, present this vision for a Quebec that acts like its own nation and is independent in certain ways, but within Canada. And a few times he was asked about sovereignty and he said, no, this is not the priority for Quebecers right now. It's not what we want to talk about right now. So it seems it's far on the back burner. And the PQ, the main sovereignist party, well, they only have three seats. So it's a, a, a low for them. So interesting. All right, Dan, thank you for that. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it's just you, all of us, and our credit card debt. Although there's something about your credit card that you need to know. And our Raji Sohal is with us this morning for more on that. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. This is a story that I don't want to share because I feel like we're getting gouged everywhere we turn right now. And I feel like this is also some sneaky news because in a couple of days on October 6th, we are all going to have to start paying those interchange fees. That's the fee associated with every credit card purchase. Now, normally these fees get absorbed by the businesses, which is fine by me. Uh, These businesses used to always have, uh, used to see signs more at the till where it would say minimum credit card purchase of $5 or $10 because businesses had to pay that fee. Okay, so those interchange fees cost businesses a lot, right? At the end of the month, that's thousands of dollars. And then in two days, when this changes, and you and I and everybody listening has to start paying that fee, I wonder if people are going to think more about their credit card transactions and whether they should be making them. I know I certainly will. I have been scrutinizing over all of my bills lately, all of my receipts, and and reminding myself of how much tax is on everything that I buy. 
And I'm, hey, we just heard it in the peak daily minute there that Canadian retail sales have fallen by two and a half percent. I think people are slowing their spending because of these things. Yeah, they are. We are questioning everything. I know I am for sure questioning everything. And by the way, this is, I think, um, in reading this, the story there that you sent me, Raji. So this is up to the merchants to decide if they are going to pay it themselves or let the customer pay it. And some companies, and certain service providers out there, Raji, and people who have this service provider know exactly which one I'm talking about, have already oh, yeah. decided to let the people pay for it. And I know people are upset about that because I've been getting notifications about this too. Yeah, people are outraged about it. And you know who this is good for? This change is good for small vendors. I'm talking about your convenience stores right. and small local shops. Okay, great for them. Everybody else, all those other companies, I'm sorry, you're a huge business. No, service providers, come on. They should be swallowing that fee, not us. And if you're wondering, Simi, where people who pay with cash stand in all of this, those people apparently have long already been subsidizing credit card payers because they pay the price tag for something for which the business has already accounted for with the interchange fee in. So the business often already considers this interchange fee, how people are going to pay with credit. So they up the price on something. Right. So they've already built that into their price. Exactly. So now if they're going to say, well, we're not going to pay this anymore, is the price going to come down? No, it is not. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm just filled with rage on this one because (laughs) the price of everything, Simi, the price of everything is going up right now. And if I, every time I use my credit card, what I have been thinking is, oh, I get a couple more points. Oh, I get a couple more points. And that won't be my thought now. It'll be right, that interchange fee that I have to pay now that I'm using this. Now, my husband's into all that cryptocurrency stuff, NFTs, all of that stuff. But anyway, when he starts talking about it, sometimes my eyes glaze over and some of it goes over my head. Um, But now I'm so much more interested in learning about cryptocurrency and how all of that works. And some say it's that's our future. That is so interesting. You know what you need to do? Perhaps you need to invest in a lottery ticket for tonight. Did you see what the draw is for tonight? Maybe that'll make you feel better. Do you have a spare $20? Maybe the money that in the future you'll be spending on interchange fees, you need to get one because the lotto max draw is $70 million. Is that big enough for you to buy a lottery ticket? I tell you what, I, I'm not going to play because I have a streak, a winning streak with lottery tickets. And I, and I know that okay, that wait, would I'm break sorry. it. That makes no sense. No, because so, I have a winning streak, but it's for small amounts. So every time I've purchased a lottery ticket, knock on wood, touch wood, and I've always only done it when there's been a sign that I really should, like, you know, finding money on the ground type of thing. I have purchased a lottery ticket and then won 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, I think I even once won $100. So I can't push my luck. I have to wait for a sign and then I will try my luck again. It's been a few years. First of all, I am fascinated by that because that seems like something <laughs> I would do if I see a sign. Like, I, And that off, my husband always says that too. Like if I say, oh, I found like a, I found a quarter because nobody finds pennies anymore. Oh, I found a dime or I found a nickel. He'll say right away, he'll say, go buy a lottery ticket or something good happens to me. He's always like, go buy a lottery ticket. So it's nice to see that we aren't the only ones who do that. So you don't judge it. For instance, for instance our producer, Greg, will only buy lottery tickets if the jackpot is of a suitable size. So he feels like it's only worth oh, it if yeah. it's over a certain amount of money. Yeah, those ones don't have my name on it. I'm just going to be honest with myself. Listen, I don't somebody have that has kind to win it. Luck. 
You know, one time I was walking in New York City and it was the middle of the night. It was freezing cold, snowy, icy ground. And I'm looking at the ground and because I didn't want to trip on anything. It's icy. And I see 10 bucks. Take a few more steps. 20 bucks. A few more steps. $100. Okay. Well, now I think it's a trap. That's a trap. So, right. So I bought a lottery ticket and, uh, and I and I want even more money, Simi Sarah. But that was because there was a sign for me, very apparent sign. See, my mom will say, hey, it's your birthday. Buy yourself a lottery ticket. No, 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 no. That's not a sign. That's dependable. That happens once a year, mom. I will have a birthday on this date every year. This is so <laughs> fascinating. So you need a sign. Well, okay, you then sit this one out. The rest of us are going to go get a ticket and maybe then we can afford those credit card fees. Raji, thank, thank you for you that. <laughs> Thanks, that is our Raji Sohal there. Did you know that? Do you notice those interchange fees? Did you know that some of your bills are going to be changing? Have you checked this? Heard about it? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of questions this morning about random acts of violence that we have seen in our city in the news. You've probably heard or seen the story about the woman who was randomly attacked just in the West End as she was coming home in her own apartment building. And if not for bystanders, right, it could have been a much worse situation. In fact, Vancouver police are saying thank you to the bystanders. Vancouver police also expressing frustration with the situation because they actually asked the court to keep this person in custody and instead this person was released on their own recognizance. So again, a lot of frustration with the system. And now we hear as well, we were talking about this with Vaughn Palmer the other day, about this report that was done for the Attorney General saying that, listen, this is not our imagination. We are seeing an increase in these problems on our streets. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with repeat offenders, random stranger violence? Where is the accountability? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Wally Opel, former BC Attorney General. Thanks for being with us. Always good to be with you, Simi. In particular, let's talk about this most recent incident here, Wally, where Vancouver police said quite publicly they asked for this person to be kept in custody and it was the judge's decision to say no to that and release this person. Do you find it unusual that police are speaking out like that? No, I don't think so. I think the police should speak out and the police have a stake in this. In fact, I think there should be more police on the streets uh, as a general deterrence. Having said that, the, the judges have the power to release people, and in fact, the law tells them to release people uh, if the Crown is not able to show that the person is substantial likelihood to commit further crimes. In other words, the, our law is such that the Crown has to ask the judge to detain a person pending trial, and the Crown does that based on the police report. And the judge is free and has the authority to detain a person and to deny that person bail. But you need to understand that the vast majority of people in Canadian jails now are there waiting trial. So the Parliament of Canada has said that we're detaining too many people pending trial. Some of those people are going to be found not guilty after a year or two years in custody. So what do we say to those people? Sorry, we took up your time. So that's the basis of our bail laws. Having said that, the judges have the power and the authority in appropriate circumstances to detain a person uh, pending trial. Now, I don't know what happened in this particular case, and I'm not going to criticize the judge without knowing what the reasons for judgment were. 
Right. Okay. But is is part? Where's the disconnect? Then I wonder: Is it that there's no room? Is it that we need to deal with people who are in custody in a different fashion? Like where, if somebody wants, if they want to hold somebody in custody, do we just not have the ability to do it? Do we have to give them the benefit of the doubt? No, no, clearly, uh, clearly there, the room has got nothing to do with it. There's ample room in the jails to keep somebody in custody waiting for that, waiting for trial. And that's the, the law is clear that if a person is likely to commit a crime. The, the words in the criminal code say, is there a substantial likelihood that if this person is released, he or she will commit further offenses? And if that's the case, then the judge has the authority and the duty to keep that person in custody. The difficulty is that is that uh, people cannot always predict human behavior. Probably what happened in this case is that the defense lawyer got before the judge and said, OK, uh, maybe the, maybe the police want him kept in custody, but there's a plan. Uh, if you release him, he'll be treated something like that. Maybe that happened. I don't know. But the fact is that judges do have the power and the authority to detain people, but they have to do it only in particular circumstances right. where that person uh is likely to commit further crimes. Okay, so given what we the know... The other thing you got to know... Yep. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you need to know is, look, the criminal justice system is very limited in its authority to do something about the, about the circumstances that are now playing out in Vancouver streets. People in the criminal justice system only see the incidents after the crime has been committed. So right now in the city of Vancouver... Anybody knows who walks the streets. There are people out there with mental illness, drug addicted, dysfunctional, unemployed, poor, and all of these people need to be looked at. They're the, they're the people that are the challenge. And if we want safer streets, we have to get into prevention. As I say, the police get there after the crime has been committed. The courts get involved after the crime has been committed. The courts can hold people accountable for the crimes that have been committed. And that's their role, and that's what they should be doing. Let's talk about then um, the people. There's obviously the people who need help. I think that definitely people understand. Yeah. But what about yeah. the repeat offender situation, Wally? People yeah. who yeah. time after time after time are committing a crime or they're going to court and being released and they're doing it again and they're going to court and they're being released. How do we deal with that? Well, the thing is, I hear this anecdotal evidence all the time that, that people are being released and re-released and uh, and without really knowing the particular circumstances of any case, I'm really loath to uh, criticize any judge. Having said that, maybe judges need to detain more people in the public interest because there is a section in the criminal code that allows judges to keep people in custody pending trial if it is in the public interest. But you can't do that randomly. There has to be some evidence to detain that person. And, uh, yeah, we have people out there with, uh, with multiple convictions. Uh, I don't know if they were released because there was insufficient evidence to convince a judge that uh, they pose a danger. And each case has to really decide. And I can understand the public frustration. Look, I'm a member of the public, and uh, Vancouver used to be a safe city. Uh, now I don't think we can say that with the amount of random crime that's taking place. So uh, I don't blame the people of Vancouver for being upset. I don't blame the police 
and all the other players in the criminal justice system for being upset for what's taking place. Do you think, though, does the system have the tools currently to deal with this situation? Absolutely. The judges have that power. And if there is a substantial likelihood, that is, can the Crown convince the judge based on the police report uh, that uh, uh, that person ought to be kept in custody? The judges have the power to do that. Also, you should know that the police release people out the scene themselves. Uh, if a person, if a police officer sees a crime being committed, uh, the police officer has the power to release that people without going before a judge. So there are multiple players in the, in this uh, process. Okay, so then where do we start? What's your advice here? Well, I think that I think everybody has to look. There's no one person that's responsible, or no one person can cure the ills that are taking place on our streets. I think we have to start with prevention. We have to start with addiction centers. We have to cure those ills that are out there now with the people who are suffering. We have to do that clearly. At the same time, I think everybody in the system, the police, the uh, courts, have to take some kind of responsibility. We're all beholden to the public, and so we're all responsible and accountable to the public. So the Crown, the defense, everybody has to uh, has to take some kind of a responsibility for taking place. I mean, maybe we need more police on the streets. Do we have New York had a huge crime problem in the downtown uh, Manhattan? They flooded the downtown with police on the streets. Do we have street? Do we have police who walk the streets and and uh, in our city? I don't know. But those are things that uh, that need we need to be looked at. Look, I'm not going to criticize the police. I don't know what, why. Uh, we don't have more police on the streets. I'm sure there's a reason. Maybe they're too busy uh, answering calls. But I think we need to get proactive. The system sometimes works in silos. And the police works by themselves. Right. The Crown works by themselves. Everybody says they're independent. And I think we have to have some kind of uh, a process where we all get together, get out of our silos, and ask ourselves, what is in the public interest how do we make our city a better place to live? That How is, can we do that? that and is that's a what good we question. need to do. That is a good yeah. question. Thank you so much yeah. for your time this morning. Always good to be with you, yeah. Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're one of the many people who work from home, our Raji Silhal is with us this morning with what you need to know. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, there, I just feel like every week we're learning about new ways that hackers are getting into our computer systems. And what's happened with the pandemic is with so many people working from home, hackers have figured out, oh, okay, well then perhaps we can get into more huge companies, databases and systems through the security flaws of people working from home. And so all, many of us would be familiar with something called Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP. And this is what's built into the computer's operating system. It's what allows you to, for example, connect from home to work, right? It's remote access. So you're able to you know, connect to your files when you work from home. You're able to connect to databases. So anyone working remotely might be able to access their work, their office work from home using RDP. Now, what's happened is a lot of uh, cyber attacks have occurred there, and we're talking about over a billion that have just been caught in the last many months. 
And uh, there are ways that you can avoid this. And if you avoid it, you're really protecting the company that you work for. Um, people who are at serious risk would be administrators who tend to work from home uh, because they have access to databases of people's personal and private information. So that would be at risk. Now, the things that you can do to uh, subvert this are actually pretty simple. I talked to Tony Ascom. He's the chief security at ESET. He says one of the things that you need to do is to use VPN. Now, some people don't bother to turn it on because they, if they don't have to in order to connect, they'll think, oh, I'll just skip that step. But it's very important you do. Another one is using that multi-step authentication. Uh, so this one, Simi, is the one where you use a different device to log in. You'll um, note that sometimes it's annoying uh, because you'll be trying to log into your computer and it will send a text to a different device like your cell phone and you get a code that you have to put in. That extra step though, those extra couple of steps, as annoying as they might be, are a big help to uh, staving off those cyber attacks. And also complex passwords, very important one. Here's Tony on that. Well, one thing I'd say is make sure you use complex passwords. But in this scenario, I'd like to, I'd like to hope that the company who's server you're accessing your the company you're working for is already enforcing you to use complex passwords yeah pa password with a zero in the middle of it or one two three four five six unfortunately are commonly used by people still? Uh, yes unfortunately they're still the most <laughs> no. passwords the the company needs to make sure they've got a good password policy but as individuals we should make sure that we're not using the same password across multiple systems, et cetera, and actually use a passphrase. So if you if you do have to think of a password, you know, make sure it's not a natural language word or or whatever. Um, and think of a phrase and use the first letters of each word in the phrase or however that might look. Okay, Raji, that's fascinating to me because I've started doing that. I've started using a passphrase. But do you have a system? Uh, so my husband works in technology. So yeah, I have a, I have a very I'll bet you have a system. system. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the amount of people who don't, who are still using uh, their partner's birthday or their Oof. address and that kind of thing. You heard it there. The one, two, three, four, five, six. A lot of people are still doing that. No, you I, put yourself at great risk when you do. I, I find it so hard to believe that they do, right? After all the story, but you're right. It probably still happens. Do you have a system for keeping track of your passwords? I use a password manager just because it's so much more efficient and more complex that I could ever come up with myself. Now, I know a lot of people are nervous about that because they're worried about that technology failing. Um, the other thing is that, I mean, you mentioned you use the passphrase. Um, I know people who come up with acronyms that they change regularly. That's another good one. Uh, putting in different symbols and numbers, coming up with a system that's reliable is a good idea because you have to, you should be changing your password yes. regularly. Yeah. I do have a system. Um, I do also have a document where I keep track of all my passwords, but it's buried under a secret name and a, like nobody would ever be able to find it. <laughs> On an island far away. Some, something yes. like that. Yes, I know. So I'm <laughs> I'm paranoid that way too, but boy, it. oh boy, passwords. <laughs> That's a good one. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Zumi. What is your system for passwords? You don't have to give me all those secrets, but maybe just tell me you do have one. Please don't tell me you're still using the one, two, three, four, five. Please don't be still using that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So much discussion about health care these days. For instance, in the last week, we've heard that the provincial government had a plan to support the health care system. Uh, we hear they're going to expand the roles of pharmacists and first responders. We expect to hear about changes coming to the fee system. We'll talk to doctors about that coming up on the show. But what about nurses? They are feeling like, hey, we need some attention here too. They say they're experiencing a lot of burnout, a lot of issues, and they don't feel like their issues are being discussed. So joining us now is Amon Graywall, who's the president of the BC Nurses Union. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Do you feel that nurses aren't kind of top of mind in all these discussions about what's going on with our healthcare system? It's starting to feel that way. Uh, you know, the announcements that were made were... For the paramedics, which, you know, we're grateful for anybody getting any support, uh, the physicians, the pharmacists, but uh, the announcements that were made were uh, previous announcements for nurses. So nothing new came in this uh, health human resources plan that they laid out. What do you what do you need? What do nurses want to see happen? Well, nurses want to see more staff, more nurses in the system so that they could have safe staffing levels, uh, their workload right now, you know, they're working, used to be four patients to one nurse. Now they can have six, eight, 10, 12 on a day shift and uh, over 20 on a night shift. And, uh, you know, they want uh, language there for uh, protection from violence. We want more seats uh, so that uh, we can educate more nurses. There should not be a wait list in nursing schools right now, and there are still wait lists. You're kidding. everybody into school. You're kidding. There's still wait lists? I know there's a lot Mm -hmm. of places that train nurses, but people still, we're not training enough nurses? UBC has over 800 people on a wait list. That's crazy. Has, so have there been discussions about this with the health ministry? Is there progress on any of these fronts? Well, we're having the conversations. We are highlighting what our nurses are saying to us and the challenges that they are facing. And, uh, you know, I mean, we keep on bringing it to their attention and, uh, you know, hoping, you know, we did get the 602 new nursing seats back in uh late uh, February, and uh, then there was the announcement for the Internationally Educated Nurses. And uh, so, I mean, there's little pieces of work being done, but nothing substantial that you can say, okay, this is going to fix it. Nothing like that. How are nurses feeling these days? What do you hear? They're overwhelmed. They, you know, have quite a moral distress because we're used to taking care of people and fixing things and doing the best that we can. And they just feel that they just can't get to every task that they need to do. They have to prioritize the care, given the fact that they have so many extra patients to look after. And they're working short-staffed in terms of, you know, you come on shift and 50% of your uh, work staff is not there because there's vacancies. It's not even people calling in sick. It's the fact that there are just vacancies. And do we see any health authority, I mean, that wants to deal with this? Is there an acknowledgement that there are these issues on the table? Um, well, people talk about it and, you know, want to know what the solutions are. But, you know, what we need to have happen is that we need to be invited to the table to sit down and talk. Nurses are very creative. 
um, you know, we are in need of a work-life balance. The fact that they are mandated to work 24 hours or extend their shifts to work uh, 16-hour, 20-hour shifts or the 24 hours, um, you know, there is no work-life balance before when we had a 36-hour work week, nurses had that work-life balance that, you know, they could work their set of four shifts. And if they wanted to, chose to pick up an extra shift, they could pick that up and still have time to recuperate. That doesn't exist anymore. The shift scheduling has all been just uh, turned upside down and uh, the nurses are feeling the brunt of that. What's amazing to me about the nursing profession is that we, when we talk, I mean, we talk about the issues, right? That the people are feeling overwhelmed and burnt out. And yet, as you point out, people still want to be a nurse. They still feel that calling. They still mm-hmm. want to do this, don't they? Yeah, we thought with the pandemic, people wouldn't want to. And we were hearing that uh, the uptake in people wanting to go into the profession was actually increasing. So that is great news for us to hear that uh, people are still wanting, I mean, it's for some people, it's that draw to the profession. This is their calling. For others, it may be, you know, it's a familial thing. The mom, the grandma, or, you know, dad were nurses and they want to continue along the family line type of thing. Um, whatever it is, you know, it's a very noble profession to be in. So many different, different avenues that you can take with this profession. Right. Are you hopeful then, like with all these changes that seem to be coming, all this work that seems to be getting done behind the scenes, are you hopeful that something might change on this front? Well, I'm always a forever the optimist, so um, I am, yeah, very hopeful that we can do something. We are just starting our provincial bargaining conference today, so uh, hopeful that uh, we get some uh, good uh, conversations with our nurses our delegates that are here today to see what is the most important priorities for them and that we can then uh, bargain and negotiate to represent our members and get them a good collective agreement. What about the issue of violence in the workplace too? Is that something that's high up on the list? It is and it's been going on. Our campaign started in 1992, 30 years ago, and we are still in that same campaign that violence is not part of the job but in reality it's in our everyday lives at work that uh, you know somebody is getting assaulted somebody is getting cursed or cussed out or you know having things thrown at them it's not acceptable yet for some reason people seem to think that in a predominantly female uh, profession that it's okay for people to do that and charges aren't laid and uh, nothing substantial is done. If that was done in any other profession, you know, charges would be laid, police would be called, not in nursing. Well, all right. We'll keep uh, keep us updated on how that goes. Amon, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cindy. I'm in Graywall. You too. I'm in Graywall, president of the BC Nurses Union. They are starting uh, negotiations. They've got a provincial conference going on talking about the issues, but they say they feel left out at this point. All this other discussion about changes happening in the healthcare system with pharmacists and first responders, doctors. We're going to talk about the fee for pay system changing. That's coming up on the show, but nurses feel like they are still waiting. It is remarkable to me to hear that there are hundreds of people on a waiting list to go into nursing school. 
we're short nurses. Uh, and despite all of the news, everything that we hear about what's going on in the nursing profession, there are people out there who feel like, nope, that is what I want to do for a living. So admirable, but we really do have to help them be able to do that. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. In the next little while, even in the next few days potentially, we expect to hear that the BC government is tabling a new deal for family doctors. This is a deal that could provide better compensation, a new model essentially to address, you know, doctors' concerns about their practices, about the rising business costs, and to maybe provide physicians with an alternative to the current fee-for-service payment system. This we all know, has been a long time coming. And this is part of the ongoing kind of announcements that we've heard uh, from the provincial government and the health minister to try to fix what many are saying is an unraveling of our healthcare system. So how will this deal, though, change all of that? Will this make a big step towards improving things. Joining us now is Dr. Rita McCracken, an assistant professor in family medicine at the University of British Columbia. Dr. McCracken, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So potentially this deal, you know, is one we're going to be here about soon, but how long in the making has this been? Um, well, I think that we have been, um, I'm a practicing family physician myself, and I think we've been waiting for uh, an alternative to the current setup that we have in British Columbia. Right now, um, it's essentially as if we're... Um, graduating new teachers to provide public schools and saying to them, uh, go out, set up your own school, and we'll pay you uh, per student per lesson. And we can see immediately why that wouldn't work in uh, for public education. And the same reasons why it wouldn't work for public education means it won't work uh, for public primary care access either. So since I have been in practice uh, for about 15 years in British Columbia, um, we haven't really had a significant option. So I guess the answer to that question is we've been waiting a long time. All right. Are you hopeful that this is the thing that might really change things for doctors? Well, um, you know, this this thing that we are talking about is um, being negotiated um, at a private negotiations table. So I don't know anything about it. Um, I, so I can't really say um, I am a little worried that the only voices being heard at the table are the Ministry of Health and um, the doctors of British Columbia, which is typically who would be at a negotiations table. Um, but we haven't heard from other key uh, primary care contributors. We haven't heard uh, from patients. And so, you know, if we're looking for uh, a massive uh, systemic change in order to improve patient access to primary care, I think we need to take it out of a uh, private negotiation environment and put it into a more um, robust and inclusive methodology. What would you tell them if you could? Uh, What I would tell them is that patient access needs to be our number one goal with whatever change that we are making. Absolutely, physicians need to feel valued and rewarded and have an income that is appropriate for their level of training and the contributions that they're making. That is absolutely a really important foundational aspect, but it's not the only aspect that our primary care system needs. We also need to make sure that we have Uh, enough clinics and we have uh, enough providers where everybody's able to get the access that they need in a timely manner. 
you know, there was a time, I guess, Dr. McCracken, when doctors, they didn't, they wanted to be their own bosses, right? They wanted to set up their own clinics. They wanted to be those business managers. But do you feel like that time is gone and that's less and less of something that a, a medical school graduate desires? Yeah, actually, I've done some research about this. And so I can say quite confidently that that is the case. There still is uh, a significant proportion. So I would guess between 15 and 20 percent, depending on uh, which sample you were to ask, who would say stalwartly, absolutely, I want to run my own business. I want to do I want to provide primary care this way, which is great. Um, We absolutely should maintain a structure for people to do the work that way. That's uh, what our system has been built upon. But what we have seen continuously uh, since at least 2003, when we have some very clear numbers, we have seen a declining proportion of family physicians saying that they want to be their own business and that they would prefer to be paid and treated in a way that is more like being an employee uh, than being uh, an entrepreneur. Hmm. What do you think happened to make that change happen? Uh, I think it's the same thing that's happened everywhere else in society. I mean, how many people um, get up in the morning and say, I want to be my own boss. Um, I want to worry about finding somebody to cover me if I get sick, um, if I want to take a vacation, uh, if I have a baby. Um, You know, most people like that extra structure of their work where they're able to do what they were trained to do. Um, And I think that we have seen in a society that we have um, more people feeling comfortable in those highly structured uh, team environments uh, and that and physicians are no different than that. So I I really don't think that uh, there's been any radical change for physicians. I rather think that we're just acknowledging physicians are human beings who do an important job, but they just want a job where they can also be a human being. So if we can set that up, if that's if that's in the cards of restructuring how doctors can work, how they can deliver care, is that something you think that would make a huge difference? Would more people, would more medical school graduates then want to be a family doctor? I uh, it's it's quite possible. I mean, the work itself is really fabulous. I I love the opportunity to connect with patients and. Uh, go on their journey of life with them. And uh, most of the trainees who I have come work with me also really love that aspect of it. So I think it's quite possible. I think the introduction of other primary care providers, such as nurse practitioners, uh, advanced practice nurses, uh, social workers, pharmacists, physiotherapists, all of those people are also going to help us uh, increase capacity so that patient access Uh, can be improved. And we don't need to be worried about camping out at a walk-in clinic for five hours to get an appointment. All right. So it sounds like there's a lot going on here. Will there be a process, do you think? I mean, obviously, doctors, they don't all have one thought on this, right, Dr. McCracken? Like, I think Mm -hmm. there'll be a lot of discussion when this comes up. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's been really difficult uh, for that discussion to take place. Our professional organizations are learning about how to have that kind of conversation, Um, but it has been pretty difficult for uh, diverse voices to be heard in those spaces. Um, There has been some pretty dominant voices, So, um, but I think there is a a dawning recognition, especially by, uh, for example, our new president of Doctors of BC, uh, Ramit Dosange, that all voices need to be heard. So, yeah, I I would say I'm a little bit hopeful that um, once we hear what there is to talk about, that we will be able to have a 
clear and uh, transparent discussion. That's so interesting what you're saying, though, and I think it also gives us an indication, doesn't it, about just how long it has been since we have talked about or tried to execute a kind a kind of overall, uh, you know, change to our healthcare system like this. Yeah, yeah, you know, we we pretty much cemented uh, Medicare how how we were going to do it. Uh, in Canada in 1962 when Tommy Douglas introduced the uh, the foundations of it. Uh, BC set things up a little bit later in the 1980s, but there has not really been a significant shift since then. And if you think about all the significant shifts that we've had, for example, in education or in banking or in other areas of um, our progressive society, we absolutely need to see the same thing happening for healthcare. It is fascinating. Dr. McCracken, thank you so much for that this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. That's Dr. Rita McCracken, an assistant professor in family medicine at the University of British Columbia, also a practicing family physician, talking about the process, which is happening right now, actually, uh, where there is a new deal happening for family doctors in this province, essentially an overhaul of how we deal with doctors in the healthcare system, uh, better compensation, a new model for how all that gets treated. So they are negotiating that right now, and it is expected to be announced well, soon, they said, uh, potentially in the next little while. They're saying definitely in October. So we're going to be hearing more about how the system's going to change. But as you can tell, it has been decades since this has happened before. So there'll be a lot of apprehension, a lot of discussion, a lot of people who want to have their voices, Dr. McCracken says. Do you think this will fix things? Are you hopeful? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, parents out there, how active are your kids? Because Participation's 2022 Child and Youth Report Card is out and the grades are not good. Let me just put it this way. If your child brought home a D, you would not be happy with that, would you, in that subject? But that's what this report does. It gives Canadian children and youth a D grade overall for their physical activity. Let's find out why that is. Joining us now is Dr. Nicholas Kuzik, a research fellow at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Dr. Kuzik, thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Can we say that there is uh, quite a bit of this that is pandemic-related? Yeah, and in fact, this is specifically pandemic uh, report cards. So this is 2020 to 2022. So what happened then? Like you would have thought that, okay, well, they're home more, maybe they're playing outside more, but that isn't the case, is it? No, we saw this decrease in the degrade, as you mentioned, um, from the 2020 report card. So when the pandemic first started, it was a sudden drastic shift in the ways kids could access physical activity opportunities. So Thinking about that very beginning stages, you know, the opportunity to play with friends, in-person physical education classes from school closures, sport competitions, and community center programming all came to a halt. Um, and, and looking at the data that we had, only 28% of children and youth met the moderate to vigorous physical activity recommendations of 60 minutes per day. And that was why we saw that decrease to the D grade. And, and something of note as well, it was the first decrease since 2007 for these report cards. So we were actually doing well, it sounds like, until the pandemic came along. We were doing well in, in the sense of small incremental changes towards being a more active children and youth. Okay. And what does it say about screen time then? Did that show that we were spending, the kids were spending too much time on screens? Did that increase? 
That as well did increase. So only 18% of kids met the screen time recommendations within the Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. And so that's two hours of daily recreational screen use. And that was why this year's sedentary behavior grade was an F as compared to the D plus in 2020. And, and again, thinking about what changes occurred because of COVID, we saw this pivot to virtual learning and calls to stay indoors, stay at home. And so it elevated some already problematic screen use in children and youth. What kind of an effect could this have long term, Dr. Kuzik? Well, I think that's an interesting question, but it's something that we really need to pivot towards more research on that subject. And it's one of the reasons why our recommendation is that there should be more long-term research in this area to see what sort of effects are having on these children and sort of looking at ways that we could benefit these children. So what do we need to take a look at here? Because obviously the pandemic was a unique situation, but did we, will health officials learn from this moving forward? I think there's some things that we can think about uh, for sure. So we actually came up with some recommendations. So for parents and caregivers, some recommendations to sort of move forward from these pandemic effects are things like creating a family media plan that sets limits around screen time, prioritizes screen-free media, family time, uh, for educators, reducing class screen use, incorporating frequent breaks and sedentary times throughout the school day. And for communities and community leaders, dedicating capital investments toward recreation facility revitalization. Uh, for government support and implement change-making solutions that prioritize inclusive, innovative policies, investments, programs, and infrastructure that promote, incentivize, and celebrate the benefits of physical activity. Okay, so then if you do you do this in two-year sections, so will it be another two years before you take a look at this? Yeah, it will be 2024 will be the next report card, and so we're starting to be underway in the planning phases of that. Right, so you're hoping that some of these numbers would obviously bounce back. Do you think that post-pandemic that people, the kids are getting more active, or are you concerned that some of these habits will stay with them? Well, we'd like to hope, obviously, um, but w- without looking at those numbers and without looking at the data, it's a bit difficult to speculate on that in particular. But w- what we can, you know, really drive home is that we did see these decreases. So as a society, as a Canadian society, we're going to have to find ways for children to increase their physical activity levels. We really are. Dr. Kuzik, thank you for your time. And thank you very much for having me.